Turn, if you would, to the second chapter of the book of Mark. There's all kinds of hands about air conditioning. I don't know anything about it. Thursday, several days ago, we had no grandchildren in the house. <laughs> After 20 days in a row of having grandchildren in the house, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. But we did make it up. We had two in our house last night. And uh, my two-year-old came in and we gave him a balloon, you know, and he was so excited. And then he wandered into our bedroom and we heard this bloody scream. He had walked into our, re our room and the fan had grabbed the balloon and sucked it out of his hands. And he was terrified. He also wasn't really excited when the thunder came this morning, so, oh well. We are continuing our way through the book of Mark. We're going to start chapter 2 today. Remember, Mark is written by John Mark. John Mark would have been a disciple of Peter. Uh, he would have traveled with Peter, and the general assumption is that Peter told him these stories. And John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, recorded it for us. That's interesting because when we get to today's lesson, we're going to see a series of conflicts between Jesus and pick a group. The Pharisees, the scribes, etc., etc. And what I believe is happening and what most commentators believe is happening is it's like Peter is telling John Mark, remember, we had all this conflict. In fact, let me give you some examples. And he said, there was this one, and there was that one, and there was this one, and there's that one. They may not necessarily be in chronological order. It's just examples of conflicts between Jesus and somebody else. And that's what we're going to see in today's lesson, a series of these conflicts. Remember the purpose of the book of Mark. What did the first sentence say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is trying to demonstrate us to us that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? Let's pick up in chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Remember, the crowds had come. He had no space to teach, so he kind of left for a while. He left for a while, and now he has returned. He has probably returned to Peter's house. Okay? And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. It's interesting, when I talk about teaching the word, we all know what that is. That is this word. When Jesus is teaching the Word. He's obviously teaching the Old Testament, but He is the Word. So, you know, He can tell you what it really means. He is teaching the Word to them. And they came, and they came bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four men. Okay? And when they could not get near Him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Him, and when they had made an opening, they lay down the bed on which the paralytic lay, let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
Now this sounds like a really strange thing, okay? I don't know about you, but if somebody showed up at my house, poked a hole in the ceiling, poked a hole in the roof, and started lowering people, that would be really odd, okay? Just saying. But we have to remember, the homes of this time would have had flat roofs because they would go up there to rest, to get some fresh air. I mean, there's no AC and there's, you know, let's go outside, let's go up on the roof. So there would have been some stairs on the outside to allow access to the roof. The roof would have made, been made of slats of some sort and all they had to do was pull some of these slats out of the way and they had access to the room below. Now, let's mention the first takeaway from today's lesson, okay? Write this down, remember it. It's good to have friends. <laughs> we have a man who is paralyzed. That's all we're told about him. We're not told the extent of it. We're not told how long he's been paralyzed. He is paralyzed. And four of his buddies grab him, put him on a bed, and start carrying him in because they're going to walk into the room, they're going to go into Peter's house, and they're going to get Jesus to heal him. But they get there, and there's a crowd of people. I mean, there's people in the room, there's people outside, there's people everywhere, and they can't get in. So they go, ah, good idea. Let's go up on the roof. They go up on the roof, they break some of the slats, they move them out of the way, they grab some rope, they tie some rope on the bed, and they lower him down. What could be more normal than that? Now, you know that I have this strange way of thinking about things at times. I just imagine Jesus sitting inside the room, okay? And some dust starts falling on him, you know? Maybe a few pieces of dirt. And the people are kind of going, what's happening here? And Jesus, this is my interpretation, is just smiling because he knows what's about to happen. He knows what's going on. So the four guys lower the one guy into the room. Quick question. Why did they bring the guy to Jesus? Obvious answer. To heal him of his paralysis. That's why they're there. But what happens? And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait a minute. There had no been no, there had been no mention of sin here. There had been no discussion about oh, I've got a real problem and I'm paralyzed. He says son, and I might add that word son is a very tender term that is used. He's very tender toward this young man lying in front of him. Son, your sins are forgiven. We've read this and we've heard this and sometimes we forget how bizarre this sentence is. I kept in my mind trying to think of an analogy that would help us understand the shock of this sentence. And I have trouble doing it. But let's say that you went to the doctor 
you had an ailment and you walk into the doctor's office and the doctor says, okay, I'm going to give you the country of China. You'd go, you're nuts. Who gave you the authority to give me the country of China? You don't have that authority to do that. I mean, China is celebrating its 100th anniversary of the Communist Party taking over. Big celebrations. And guess what? I have no authority to give you that. And guess what? That's what the scribes who are sitting there in the room are thinking. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, what were the scribes doing there? Well, that's obvious. They were spying on Jesus, okay? Throughout his ministry, throughout the ministry of John the Baptist, we see scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., there watching to see what's going on. And then we begin to see them interacting with Jesus, trying to find evidence that he is doing something wicked and stupid. So they're sitting there in the room, and they are thinking. It doesn't even say they're saying. They're thinking these thoughts. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with these thoughts. Who, did this, who does this guy think he is? Why does he say these things? Who gives him the authority to say your sins are forgiven? This is blasphemy. And you know what? It is. Unless. Unless Jesus really is the Son of God. Who gives him the authority? This is blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sin except God himself. You know, if you do something to me, if you walk up to me and whack me over the head with a two-by-four, and then you're repentant about it and ask my forgiveness... I can forgive you of that offense. I have the authority to forgive you of the sins you have committed against me. But I do not have the authority to forgive you of the sins you've committed against God. I'm not even sure I have the authority to release you from sins that you've committed toward other people. I can forgive you the offense against me. And in fact, I am obligated to forgive you the offenses against me. But what you do to God is between you and God. And I have nothing to say about it. So the man is lowered down. And Jesus' first words were, Son, your sins are forgiven. And all of the scribes are going, eh. he can't do this. And immediately Jesus, 
perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, we could have an interesting survey. Which is easier? To tell somebody who has been paralyzed for who knows how long, get up and walk, or to tell somebody that their sins are forgiven. Guess what? I don't have the power to do either one. The scribes don't have the power to do either one. Nobody in this room has the power to do either one, except Jesus who is sitting there. So he asked them, which is easier to do? Now, just out of curiosity, which is easier to do? Hmm. I don't know. But that you may know. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Why does he work the miracle to demonstrate his authority? We're going to see this conflict. We talked about it a little bit last week. We're going to see this conflict. The people want to see the miracles. The people want to be healed. The people want to be fed. We'll get to that later. That's what they want. They want the miracle. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. The house was full. Why were were all these people here? They wanted to see the miracles. They wanted to have their ailments taken care of. God, Jesus, it hurts when I do this. You know the joke, right? Don't do that. But that's not how Jesus works. They wanted to see the miracle. But what Jesus was there for was to take away their sins. That's why he was there. That's why he had come. That was the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That he, Jesus, has the power and authority to do something about the true condition of humanity. And the true condition is not that we are paralyzed, although some of us are. The true condition is that we are all sinners in need of salvation. And Jesus says, which is harder? Both are impossible. Not difficult, impossible to the average person in this room. Hi there. She was watching little ones. (laughs) It was impossible until Jesus shows up. Which is harder for Jesus? Either one. Which was his true mission? To take care of the sin problem. Why did he heal the people? To demonstrate that the Son of Man 
that he, Jesus Christ, has the authority to deal with sin. And that's why he's there. Now, let's back up just a moment. Back to my curious way of thinking about things. The man is on the bed. He's lowered into the room. And Jesus says, your sin is forgiven. I wonder what was going through this man's mind at that point. Oh, shoot. I wanted to be healed. (laughs) You know, if I stand up here and tell you your sin is forgiven based on the work of Jesus Christ, I am sharing a truth with you, a fact. I am sharing it with you. But when Jesus, the Son of God, says your sin is forgiven, he's not sharing a fact. He is commanding and telling this man his sin is forgiven. I am convinced that the guy laying on the mat realized that something had happened to him. His legs still didn't work, but he knew the guilt that had entrapped him, had been dealt with. Because Jesus, not some random teacher, Jesus, the Son of God, had told him his sin was forgiven. And all of a sudden, every bit of guilt that had squished him all of his life was removed. We sometimes don't realize the impact of guilt in our lives. You know, today we're very uh, aware of what people call false guilt. You know, I'm going to heap guilt on you because you won't do what I want you to do. Okay? And in reality, you need to tell me, go away and leave me alone and stop putting me on this guilt trip. But there is the reality of guilt in our lives. When we sin against a holy God, we are guilty. It's not just a psychological phenomena. It is a fact. It is a reality. We are guilty because we violated the command of a holy God. And all of a sudden, that holy God showed up and said, Your sin is forgiven. I believe that the man had a sigh of relief at that point. Now, let's step outside the story for just one moment, though, and talk about one issue. Did Jesus tell the man, your sin is forgiven, because Jesus knew that the paralysis was a result of sin in the man's life? The answer to that question is, we don't have a clue. The answer to that question is, probably not. The answer to that question is, why would we know the answer? In the scripture, numerous times, physical disease is the result of specific sin. 
you do this, you rebel against Moses, and all of a sudden you've got leprosy. And the scripture is very clear. But the scripture is also clear that there are times when people suffer and there is no obvious connection. They come to Jesus. Who sinned that this guy is sick? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, neither. All of this is done for the glory of God. All sickness is the result of sin. It came with the fall. But if you think that a particular illness is the result of a particular sin, either you're a prophet and God has shared this information with you, or you should shut up about it and not talk about it. Okay? Don't go into a hospital room when somebody is sick and say, now, confess your sin and it'll go away. Okay? Unless you're a prophet, and you know what they did to prophets. Even the good ones they stone sometimes. Be ready for it. We do not know. God has not shared with us the connection between a particular illness and a particular sin. So don't get involved in that. The whole book of Job tries to answer that question. And at the end of the book, God shows up and says, everybody, this is a loose translation, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. That's 50 chapters into it of people arguing for 45 of those chapters. Surely Job did some horrendous sin or God would have not put this horrendous suffering on him. And God chastises his friends and God tells Job, you got questions? Let me ask you some questions. So, what is the point of this? We sometimes think, oh, Kyle got cancer. Therefore, Kyle must have sinned in some way. Well, Kyle did sin in some way, but I'm not sure there's a connection between those two. And don't assume there is. Okay? We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is not the way that it was intended to be. And God uses that to accomplish his purposes. Did this man sin and that caused him to be paralyzed? Or was this man paralyzed so that he could show up on this day so that Jesus could demonstrate that Jesus was the Son of God? I think the answer is the second one. Okay? So, that's an aside. Don't try to play the prophet if you're not the prophet. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, I think this is kind of strange, just me. You know, I get the rise part, pick up the bed. I understand that. It's sitting in the middle of the room. Uh, and stick around and listen to my teaching. No. He said, I'm done with you. Okay? Your sins are forgiven and you're healed. What more do you need? Go tell your family that you're taken care of. Okay? And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. 
So what are you thinking at this point? You're in this crowd. What are you thinking? Okay, he healed somebody. That's pretty impressive. Now, we've seen him heal some other people. That was pretty impressive. But he forgave this guy's sin, and God didn't zap him. He committed blasphemy, and God didn't zap him. In fact, he committed blasphemy, and then he was still able to heal somebody. Maybe he didn't commit blasphemy. Maybe the only person who can forgive sins is God, and maybe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, you and I are cheating. We read the first verse. You and I are cheating. We read the passage about being, Jesus being baptized and the heavens opening up and saying, this is my beloved son. We know that. These people probably didn't know anything about that. They sure certainly hadn't read the first verse of the book of Mark. Clue, it hadn't been written yet. So they're sitting there thinking, who is this guy? So our first conflict between Jesus and the scribes, the teachers of the law, they thought he was committing blasphemy. And you know what? He was committing blasphemy unless he was the son of God. Example number two. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Wouldn't you love to have a CD of that sermon? Just saying. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting by the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. We've seen this pattern before with Peter, Andrew, a couple of other guys. They were out fishing. They were working on their nets. Jesus walks by and says, come on, follow me. They dropped what they were doing, and off they went. And when we talked about that, we discussed the fact that this is really weird. You're sitting there going about your business, and some guy walks up and says, you, come with me. And they do it. I don't know about you, I'd be a little cautious, a little questioning. Once again, we forget the authority that Jesus really has. But this one's different. The previous two examples, we had two brothers, two brothers, good Jewish guys working at a good Jewish job, fishing. And Jesus comes and said, you good Jewish boys doing good Jewish jobs, why don't you follow me? Levi is a tax collector. And we're not talking the IRS here. We're talking working for the Romans. Now, we have had a long discussion in here before about how the tax system works, and we're not really going to go into all that again, but suffice it to say that the Romans would hire the locals 
to collect the taxes, and the locals could collect all the taxes they could, as long as they didn't create a riot, and they would pass up the food chain, however much money was required, and whatever was extra, they got to keep. And you go, why could they do this? Well, they had a Roman soldier standing behind them with a big sword. And you didn't want to mess with the big Roman soldier with the big sword. So you hired the locals because the locals know where everybody is and they know how much money they have. And if somebody says, I'm flat broke, the local's going to know, eh, I know the party you threw the other day. This guy was selling out to the Romans. I mean, if we're looking at the food chain of social status and social standing, a tax collector was down at the bottom because he was working for the enemy. Think about this. The Nazis have occupied northern France in World War II, and they start collecting taxes. And you're the Frenchman that's helping them do it. What's going to happen when the war is over? Okay? You've seen all the pictures of what they... Anyway. And Jesus walks by him and says, You, come with me. Follow me. And he leaves all of his books. He leaves all of his stuff. He leaves the Roman soldier. And off he goes to follow after Jesus. Now... You're one of the other disciples, and you're going, this guy's joining our group? You just invited the collaborator to join us? The guy who's committed treason against us good Jewish guys, and you're inviting him to come along? How could you do that? Now, remind ourselves that Levi is Matthew. Okay, like lots of us, we have multiple names. My first name is actually Luther, but most people don't know that because I always go by Kyle. So Matthew is Levi, okay? And he rose and followed him. But that's not the conflict. Here comes the conflict because Levi invites Jesus over for dinner. And Levi invites Jesus over for dinner, and, G and Levi also invites all of Levi's friends. And who are Levi's friends? <gasps> Other tax collectors! And as he reclined at table at, in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Okay, you're having a dinner party, okay? You've seen the pictures. It's not, you know, the Lord's Supper where you're all sitting on one side of a table. There's low tables. You're kind of laying there on a cushion. You're eating the food. It is a very intimate setting. This is what you do with your friends. This is what you do with your family. This is an intimate setting. And there is Jesus, there are the disciples, there are the tax collectors, and then there's this group that are just labeled the sinners. 
Now, you and I both know that we're all sinners. So if we're all sinners, why is there this group called the sinners? Well, these are the public sinners. You're laughing at this word? These are people who polite people don't invite over for dinner. They are the prostitutes. They are those who have committed public crimes. There are those in the community that polite company does not associate with. And they are collectively known as the sinners. Now, the tax collectors I understand. Levi's a tax collector, therefore, okay. But why this other bizarre group? Well, go ahead. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I've told you before, J. Frank Norris was the pastor of the First Baptist Church here in Fort Worth. There, there, somebody's coming out with another book about him. Um, he is known for the fact that he shot a guy in his office. And, but he was, he was found not guilty. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, he also happens to be a relative of mine, but don't get me started on that one. <laughs> he was married to my great-great-aunt or something. Anyway, uh, he did sermons with titles like The Ten Worst Sinners in Fort Worth, Names Given. <laughs> Those are the disreputable people, right? That's who's at dinner here. If you're a tax collector, the other tax collectors may associate with you, but the good folk don't associate with you. So if you're going to associate with somebody, who's it going to be? The sinners. Now, let's think about this for a moment, though. Levi just met Jesus. Jesus said, follow me, and he came. And Levi wants everybody that he knows to know Jesus. And that's a good thing. Statistically speaking, within two years of your conversion, the vast majority of your unbelieving friends are no longer your associates. You, you, you get a new circle. You get involved in church activities, you get involved in this and that, and you begin to associate. And you know what? I understand that. But all those people need Jesus. They all need to hear the gospel. They all need to hear, Son, your sins are forgiven, and come and follow me. And guess what? That's what Levi had heard, and that's what Levi wanted his associates to hear. So, they're having dinner. 
Jesus, the tax collectors, the disciples, and the disreputable sinners. And guess what? Somebody's watching. Somebody's always watching. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples. Now, I think this is interesting. They didn't talk to him. They talked to the disciples. There's a lesson there. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we know, 1 Corinthians tells us, maybe we'll get to it in our sermon series, that bad company corrupts us. Okay? So, the Pharisees are not that far off, are they? Don't you know, disciples, that sitting around with tax collectors and sinners is going to be bad for your reputation? It's going to be bad for your ministry? It's not going to look good? Why is Jesus sitting here eating with these people? Now, this is the first time that we've talked in this book about the Pharisees. So, we've had long lessons about them before. They'll show up again, but let's remind ourselves who they are. The Pharisees, well, they were firm believers in the law. Not just the law, but every nuance of the law. And not just the law that was given, but the law they had created to keep them from getting close to violating the law that God had given them. They were professional goody-two-shoes. They were not going to break the law. They were not going to do anything that appeared to be evil. And the people really uh, admired them for doing this. And we're going to see this conflict between them and Jesus because Jesus, well, let's see what Jesus says. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, let's just stop right there. Most of us don't go to the hospital unless we're sick. That's pretty simple, right? You know, I show up at the doctor. Doctor, I'm feeling great. Ah, there must be something wrong with you. Here, let's run some tests. No. No. We have a tendency to just ignore the doctor because the doctor is there to take care of us when we are sick. And Jesus says, that's like me. I did not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Now, we have to think about that phrase for a while, though. Didn't we mention a while ago, aren't we all sinners? Yes. Doesn't the scripture clearly say that there is none righteous no, not one. So when it says that I'm not, when Jesus says, I'm not here to call the righteous, who is he talking about since the only one righteous on the planet at this time is him? Well, let's use the Pharisees as the example. The Pharisees thought they were righteous. They thought 
They weren't sinners. They thought they were not in need of a doctor. They thought they're pretty good stuff. God likes me because I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing. And Jesus says, you go crawl under that rock. Let me take care of the people who know that they're sinners. Now, do you think the tax collectors knew that the Jewish people hated them? Yes, they did. Do you think this group known as the sinners, the public disreputable people, knew that they had sinned? Yes, they did. Levi, Matthew, had probably not had a good Jewish person say a kind word to them since the day they took the office of tax collector for the Romans. And Jesus came and said, come on, follow me. It's like when we'll see with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come on, I'm going to your house for dinner. Nice people, good people, good society people did not go to a tax collector's house for dinner. They just didn't do it. They knew they were outside the righteousness of God. They knew they were sinners. And Jesus said, that is who I have come to deal with. I am the physician who has come to take care of those who know they are sick. Let me just give you a general rule. If you do not know that you're a sinner, you will never be saved. At some point, you have to become aware of the sin in your life or you will never be saved. If you believe that somehow you're going to show up in heaven because you're a good citizen, you love your spouse, you love your kids, you tolerate your grandkids, and you put up with your neighbors, you're wrong. If I give everything that I have to take care of the poor, it means diddly squat. If you do not acknowledge your need of a Savior. And that's what Jesus is saying. So the first conflict was over Jesus saying your sin is forgiven. The second conflict is really over Jesus asking this tax collector to follow him and Jesus having a relationship with sinners. Now, I might add, 1 Corinthians does say bad company makes bad morals. It does say that. If you are associating with the sinner community, what, what did your thing say? Disreputable. And you're not doing it to share the gospel with them. It is possible that you can be led astray by them. But guess what? Jesus isn't going to be led astray by anybody. Okay? Number two. 
Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay? This one's a little bit different because it's not just the Pharisees. It's John's disciples. This is John the Baptist, remember? The guy we saw in chapter 1. We'll see him again in chapter 6 or 8 or something when he does get killed. John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees' disciples are fasting. And Jesus' disciples are not fasting. Hmm. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Let's put in a quick discussion. What is fasting? Fasting is denying yourself something that is good. Okay, you don't fast from sin. You fast from something that is in and of itself good. Generally, we think about fasting as food, okay? For a period of time, I am not going to eat so that I can use that time to worship God. I can use that money to give to some good cause. Why do we do that? Or we don't really do it much these days. Why? Because one of the purposes of fasting is to teach your body that your body is not in control of your life. It is called discipline. The scripture actually talks about the denying of your own flesh, saying no to your good bodily functions for a period of time so that you are disciplining yourself to be led by the spirit and not by the flesh. And that's why we fast. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the crowd, when you fast, here's how you ought to do it. Not if you fast, but when you fast, this is how you ought to do it. Um, you're not to make a big deal about it. In fact, you're not to let anybody know you're doing it. It's not, woe is me, I'm dying with hunger because I skipped breakfast to serve God. No, don't tell anybody. That's what we're told in the book of Matthew. So, why don't we do this today? Very much. Some do, and if you do it, don't tell me, okay? We don't do it much today because we're not really much into self-denial. We, as good 21st century Americans, believe that whatever I desire that's not sinful, I ought to have anytime I want it. That's just the way we are. So, John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. Now, remind ourselves, in the Old Testament law, there is one day a year that everybody is supposed to fast, the Day of Atonement. That's when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, etc., etc. The Pharisees had adopted the idea of fasting two days a week. I forget which days they were, like Monday and Wednesday or something, I don't know. So two days a week, a good Pharisee would fast. John's disciples were doing something similar, and people were aware of this. So, that's the conundrum. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
the days will come when the bridegroom is taking away, taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Huh. What's the picture? Your son is getting married. Your daughter is getting married. And you are having a wedding, and you're having a reception. This reception is a celebration. It is a party. And that's a good thing. You don't show up at the party and say, nope, I'm not going to taste the food because I'm fasting. Because it's not a day for fasting. It's a day of celebration. And that's normal. That's good. I had a long discussion with a friend of mine who got married later in life, and he hated the whole idea of having a reception after the wedding because it distracted from the seriousness of the occasion. I don't think he wanted to pay for it, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> and I told him, it's a celebration. You and the community want to celebrate what is happening. Jesus is the bridegroom. We'll see this analogy more later. He is the groom come to call his bride the church. This gets explained later. So, the bridegroom is with the bride, and guess what? It's a celebration. There's no time for fasting right now. We need to celebrate that Jesus is present with them right now. But he tells them. And in my mind, he's telling the people asking the questions, and he's also telling his disciples, there's going to come a time when the bridegroom isn't going to be here. And then you may need some discipline. You may need some self-control. You may need some fasting. But not now. Later. But not now. I have this vision of Jesus returning on a Wednesday and some Pharisee going, well, I, I know you're inviting us to a feast, but I'm fasting today. No. When Jesus shows up, it's party time. Just admit it. But he's not done. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, I would have to ask my wife, since I've never sewn a thing in my life. But you have a fabric that is going to shrink as it's washed and all of that stuff. And you have a garment that you're going to patch. The garment has already shrunk all it's going to, but you patch it with a new piece of fabric, and when you wash it, the new piece of fabric is going to shrink, and guess what? It's going to tear away from the fabric. 
you are making new wine. But you've got this old wine bag over here. Let's put the new wine in the old wine bag. And guess what? The wine is going to do its chemical magic. That's what wine does. And it's going to destroy that bag. What is he telling us here? He's telling us something new has come. And you can't take that new and stuff it into the old ways of doing things. What does this have to do with fasting? The Pharisees had their intricate rules about how they were to operate in order to be right with God. And Jesus is telling them that's all old school. In fact, he's later going to demonstrate, we see it in the book of Hebrews, that that whole sacrificial system, that whole all of that, it's all old. It served a purpose. It wasn't wicked. It wasn't evil. It wasn't wrong. It was just the picture. And now the new has come. And guess what? It's going to be different. That's what he's telling them. He's telling them that things are changing. Don't try to stuff the new into the old because it's not going to fit. One more real quick. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look what they are doing, what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So they're walking somewhere on the Sabbath day, and they're walking through the fields. And the disciples grab some of the grain, they kind of work it in their hands, and they munch on it. Now, eating it is not a violation of the Sabbath, okay? You're not commanded to fast on the Sabbath day. Plucking grain out of somebody's field doesn't violate Jewish law. You, are, you were allowed to walk through somebody's field, get some grain, and eat it. You weren't allowed to break out your threshing equipment and start taking down stalks. They were very specific about this. So they had not really broken any law. But the Pharisees said, ah, they are harvesting on the Sabbath day. Harvesting is work. Therefore, they are working. Therefore, they are violating the law of God. Jesus stopped them. First, Jesus gives them an example from the Old Testament. David was having his run-in with Saul. You remember all of this. And he fled. And he fled to where the priests were. And he says, we're hungry. Give us some bread. Well, the only food we have is the bread that is on the altar over here. And only priests can eat that. But you know what? 
this is an emergency. Here, eat the bread. And they ate it. And God didn't zap them. Why? Because God acknowledges that there are special occasions. God acknowledges that taking care of the needs of somebody else is more important than keeping the rules and regulations of the Sabbath day. If your neighbor's ox falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you're supposed to help get it out. But isn't that working on the Sabbath? If your neighbor's car gets a flat tire and they need help, you help them on the Sabbath. If your neighbor needs help, you don't say, well, sorry, it's Sunday. Football game's on. I'm not helping you. That's not the purpose of the Sabbath day. What is the purpose of the Sabbath day? Once again, we're not real big on this today either. The purpose of the Sabbath day was God demonstrating to us that we need rest. And number two, God demonstrating to us that we need to be dependent upon Him. You know, I can work six days a week, but if I work seven days a week, I can make a little bit more money, I can grow a little more crops, I can do a little more stuff, and God says no. There is a limit. Trust me. Work six days and I'll take care of you. Okay. One time I was teaching in here and we were talking about the Sabbath and I actually asked people, when you were young, what things were you not allowed to do on the Sabbath day? And it was pretty humorous. You know, you didn't milk the cows, you didn't do this, you didn't go to, you certainly didn't go to the movie. I mean, there were things you didn't do because it was the Sabbath day. But here is Jesus' point. You ready for this? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What does that mean? It is good for you to rest. I wouldn't know, but I've been told that it's good. It is good for you to rest. It is good for you to live a life of dependence upon God. I, God, am graciously giving you this command because it's good for you. But if I, the Pharisee, am going to take this thing called the Sabbath, wrap it into a big club, and pound you over the head with it, I have forgotten what the purpose of the Sabbath day is. It's not a club to beat you into submission. It is a gracious gift from God. I might add, if we had a lot more time, all the commands of God are a gracious gift given by God to us to tell us how to live a life of human flourishing. It's not good for you to kill somebody. It's not good for them. It's not good for you. It's not good for you to bear false witness. It isn't. But we're just talking about the Sabbath day here. It should be the easy one. And then he ends with this sentence. So the Son of Man is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. What is he telling them? What he's really telling them is if I, Jesus, tell them to bake a cake on the Sabbath day, baking a cake on the Sabbath day is the right thing to do. Because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. What he's telling them is not that I have the right to break the law. It's I have the ability to tell you what the law really means. I told you I wasn't going to go back to the book of Matthew, but I'm going to cheat sometimes. Remember that long discussion in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, I say if you lust... You've heard it said you shouldn't kill, but I say if you hate. You have heard it said, you have heard it said, but I say he's not changing the law. He's telling them what it really means because he is the Son of God. So, what do we learn from all of this? Jesus is the Son of God. As such, he can forgive sins. As such, he can command us to follow him. As such, he can help us as we communicate his love to our <clears throat> sinners around us. Such a strange phrase. As such, we can do good things on the Sabbath because he the Son of God, the Son of Man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that we also, like Levi, would follow you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.